All right. Folks, here's what we're going to do. We're in Chapter 4 today. We're going to look at Lesson 9. Now, let me just kind of bring you up to speed with where we're at. We've gone through the first three chapters. And the first three chapters basically are doctrinal, theological, really talking about who you are in Jesus, what Jesus has done for you, what you have become in Christ, who you were before, without Jesus, and really talking about the church and so forth. And all of that was laid down as a foundation on which you're to build your Christian life. Because when we get into chapter 4 now, we're really going to talk about practical things. We're going to talk about how to live our life as individuals and how to live our lives as a church. In fact, today we're going to talk about the church a little bit more. And so everything is a foundation. So this is very important. And this is especially important when you talk about where we are as a Christian church. Usually what happens, and I've I've been a believer now 26 years, when people get saved, when they commit their life to Jesus, there's almost this assumption in the church that you just need to automatically start cleaning up your life. You need to have your act together. You need to overcome stuff immediately. And you need to quit doing certain things. But we never tell them the basis from which to do it. Did you understand? It's just like automatically you need to start doing this, but we never give them a foundation from which to build on, and that's who they are in Jesus now and what Jesus has done for them. And then the problem is is that eventually those folks just kind of drop off. They tried it. They can't do it. Because let me ask you something. How many of you find it easy to overcome your habits? How many of you have habits? Everybody should raise their hand. Okay. How many of you have habits you don't like? Everybody should raise their hand. How many of you find it hard to overcome those habits? All right. Now, if we find it hard to overcome those habits, why do we have the attitude, and I call it an attitude, that when somebody else has something they need to deal with, they need to immediately deal with it or they're not right with Jesus. Have you noticed that we're like that? Okay? The problem is it doesn't, cut, it doesn't, it doesn't change that quickly, does it? They've got to have a foundation from which to spring forth out of, and that's what the first three chapters are. Because the reality is, listen to me, the reality is change doesn't come quick, does it? You know, as I think about 26 years as a believer, yeah, there were some things that God immediately dealt with me. I mean, I gave up the smoking within the first year. Drinking left immediately. But then I wasn't addicted to the drinking aspect of it. Cigarettes, that was a little bit more. Actually, you know how long it took me to overcome cigarettes? Seven years. You say, now what do you mean seven years, George? Well, physically it took a year. Mentally it took seven years. Do you see my point? Now, we see what happens is, and now have you noticed how churches are? We measure things by whether or not you're doing the big stuff. Are you taking a drink? Are you smoking a cigarette? Are you doing dope? And if you've overcome those things, you're okay. But we kind of turned a blind eye to gossip. And there, have you ever met a habitual gossiper? Have you noticed that that's okay with God? 
If you read through Proverbs, you find out it isn't. Do you see what I'm saying? So, we have to have a foundation from which to build our Christian life on. And that's what the first three chapters are. The first three chapters were communicating to you that it's purely by salvation of God's grace alone that you're saved, that you're okay. It's not anything to do with you. In fact, before you became a Christian, where were you with God? Enemies. Objects of His wrath. And so now because of that, we're going to get into chapter 4 now. And so let's notice together, we're going to look at, specifically today, verses 1 through 6. And he's going to talk about the issue of unity. Now, anybody tell me what a definition of unity is? Okay, a group coming together with one objective. Okay, that's a good definition. Anybody else have a different definition? What's unity? Okay, teamwork, I heard that. What? Okay, anybody else? How about that they're centered on one issue or one object? Okay, that's, that's another way of saying it. Okay, so let's look here. We're going to talk about unity today, specifically unity with the church. So I want you to notice with me, verse 1, it says, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy of your calling with which you were called, with all lowliness and gentleness, with long-suffering, bearing with one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you are called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. So let's look here. First of all, the, the call to unity, verses, verse 1 here. So here's the basis of his call. The word, therefore, refers to the first three chapters. When you look in your Bible, Paul is saying, I, therefore. Now that therefore is reflecting back on the first three chapters. So what does that mean? Just what I told you earlier. The basis for what he's getting ready to talk to them about comes out of what? The first three chapters. Who you are in Jesus. What he's done for you. Okay? So, the word therefore refers to the first three chapters. Now, the basis of the call is what God has done for us. The basis of the call, of his calling us to unity is based upon what Jesus, what God has done for you. It isn't based upon you. It isn't based upon what family you came from. It isn't based upon whether or not you got raised in a Christian home or not. It isn't based upon how big of education you have or not. It isn't based upon whether or not you're a ditch digger or a banker. The fact of the matter is, is your salvation has nothing to do with you. It has to do purely with who, folks? Jesus. And so because of that, that's the basis of the call he's getting ready to make for you here. So then he reflects upon where he's at, his condition now. So, Paul was a prisoner for the Lord. Remember, he was in prison when he wrote this letter. He was a prisoner for the Lord. So here's the call. Here's what he's saying that you and I need to do. Look at verse 1. Look at what it says there. I beseech you to walk worthy of the calling 
with which you were called. Here's what we're to do. We are to live our lives in a manner worthy of who we are. It's not so much like this anymore, but how many of you remember a time when if you were raised in certain families, you couldn't do something simply because it would reflect poorly on your family? How many of you know what I'm talking about? You, we don't do that because cannons don't do that. How many of you know what I'm talking about? Or, you, know, you, you just didn't do that because it would reflect poorly upon your family name. You know what I'm saying? You had to, because of who you were and the family you came from, you had to live up to that name. So like if your family had a reputation in town of being a hard worker, a lot of times you would go to a job and they'd say, oh, we'll hire you because you're a so-and-so and we know they're hard workers. How many of you know what I'm talking about? I mean, you know what I'm saying? That, that used to be the way it is. Is that the way it is anymore? Not necessarily. Okay? But this is what Paul's saying. He wants you to live your life worthy of the name you carry. Worthy of the calling you have. Now, what's the calling you have, folks? Jesus. Salvation. You and I are to live our lives in light of the salvation that Jesus has given us. Did you understand what I'm saying? Now, in fact, let's go back a little bit. Look in your Bible there. He says, I, therefore, a prisoner of the Lord. What's that next word there? Beseech. Now, somebody else have a different translation. That's what the New King James or the King James says. Who's got an NIV here? Okay, challenge. What, what, do you, what does yours say? Urge. Okay, so beseech kind of gives you a stronger sense of that word that, than what the NIV says. He's really emphasizing that you need to do this. Folks, this is what I need you to understand. You and I need to live our lives in such a way that it is reflective of the Savior that we have. Do you understand what I'm saying? You need to live your life in such a way that it is reflective of the Savior that we have. Now, here's how you do that. Now, how do we, how do we live our life in that way, George? Well, he tells us. Look here. Verse 2. With all lowliness and gentleness, with long-suffering, bearing with one another in love. So let's take each one of those issues here. First of all, in humility. That's what lowliness is. We are to walk in humility. Now let me just stop for a moment. Let me tell you what humility is not. Because as soon as we use that word in our culture, we immediately assume that Paul's telling us that we need to be doormats. Do you know what I mean by that? That you need to be somebody that others can just step on and rub their feet on. That is not what he's talking about here. What he's talking about here when he talks about humility is really the opposite of pride. Humility is recognizing who you really are. So let's go back to the first three chapters. Who are you? Without Jesus, you're nothing. Did you understand what I'm saying? You're, everything is who, who you are comes out of Jesus Christ. So when you walk in humility, you can truly say, you know, without Jesus, I'm nothing. Or like, for instance, George Whitfield in England, when he's walking by and he sees a man going to the gallows, back then they had public execution by hanging, and he sees a man being led to the gallows, he makes this statement, There but for the grace of God go I. You understand what he's saying? 
if it wasn't for the grace of God in his life, he might be the one heading to the gallows, is what Whitfield was saying. That's humility, folks. Humility isn't, look at what I've done. Humility is, look at what Jesus has done in my life. Look at what he's given me. Okay, it's recognition there. So we're to walk in humility. Here's the other aspect of it. The key to humility is recognizing who we are and what he has done. If you really want to understand about being humble, it's viewing everything in light of the cross. You understand what I'm saying? It's viewing everything in light of the cross, in light of what Jesus has done. It's looking at who you were before, recognizing who you are, and recognizing what Jesus has done. Okay? Now, that's the, that's the issue of humility. Here's, here's the other aspect of it. We're to walk in gentleness, he tells us there. Now, what does that mean? Gentleness suggests having one's emotions under control. It means having your emotions under control. When you deal with people, you deal with them gently because your emotions are under control. Does everybody understand what I'm talking about? How many of you have ever met somebody who has totally lost it emotionally? Moms, do you know what I mean? You're exasperated. Your last nerve has been plucked. How many of you have experienced that? I have. I have plucked my wife's nerves and I have plucked my mother's nerves. And I know what that is. And when they deal with you when their nerves are plucked, is it gentleness? What's that? I'm not going to comment. <laughs> My emotions are under I'm gentle. <laughs> no, but when we deal with people, we need to deal with them gently. We need to have our emotions under control. Now, this is a, now specifically we're going to talk about with reference to the church because we're talking about being unified as believers. Folks, we need to deal with people in gentleness. It's specifically, remember what I told you earlier, our tendency is we want people to change immediately. Do they change immediately? And when you have people who are struggling with things, who maybe are struggling with sin issues and stuff, sometimes it can be very frustrating to deal with them, can it not? But what we're called to do is, is we're called to deal with them in gentleness. In fact, if you want to write a verse down as a cross-reference, Galatians chapter 6, verse 1. Paul says this. Let me read it to you. I just forgot it off of my mind. I've quoted so many times, but let me read it to you. Galatians 6, 1. It talks about dealing with a fallen brother. Brethren, if a man is overtaken in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness. Considering yourselves, lest you also be tempted. Here's what he's saying. If you have somebody who's overtaken in a sin, you need to work with that one, restore him, that is, help him, in the spirit of gentleness. That's having your emotions under control. Why? Because you need to recognize that you could also be tempted in the same way. 
In fact, you notice gentleness has to be connected with humility. You notice that? Gentleness has to be connected with humility, folks. You want to know why? Because if I don't have humility and I try to deal with you with the stuff that's in your life, if I don't have humility, how am I going to view you? As beneath me. Because I'm going to look at you and say, well, I ain't got your problem. I'm doing a whole lot better than you. Yeah, I'll help you out. See, that, that, that's wrong. Humility says, man, man, if it wasn't for the grace of God, I'd have the same problem. If it wasn't for Jesus, who's to say where my life is? Would be. You know what I'm saying? And so in gentleness, you try to work with somebody. Because again, Galatians 6.1, recognizing what? You also could be tempted. See, I think a lot of times when we dealt with people, you know, I'm a, I'm a Baptist. I'm, you know, I've been in a been in independent Baptist churches. I think about some of the things we've done, wagging our fingers at people, telling them to get right or get out. Don't let the door hit you on the way out. How many of you know what I'm talking about? You know, I'm going to be honest with you. That, that came out of pride. Now, I've never done that, excuse me, but I've seen it. That comes out of pride. That's not humility, and that's not the spirit of gentleness. That's how we're to deal with people. Okay, so let, let's go on, because it gets hairier as we go on here. What do you mean hairier? Well, well let's look here. we got to do it with what? We need to endure in the face of hardship. Patience. We need to endure in the face of hardship. I was meditating on uh, some things this week, scripturally. And I came to this conclusion. You may want to write this one down. The Bible assumes you're going to have a tough time. You want to write that one down. The Bible assumes you're going to have a tough time. Now, there's a lie out there that a lot in the church have grasped a hold of, and that is, if I know Jesus, everything's supposed to be okay and wonderful. And I'm not supposed to have any problems whatsoever. And if I am having problems, there must be something wrong with me with Jesus. And you'll have TV preachers tell you that kind of garbage. Here's what I want you to understand. That is so wrong. That's such a lie. Because when you read the Bible, the Bible just automatically assumes that you're going to go through some tough times, hard times, and that the world is not a nice place. How do I know that? Well, here's what the Bible makes assumptions about when you read through the Gospels. Unjust judges. Wicked people. Corrupt officials. People who will do you wrong. I mean, when you read through the Bible, don't you see that? It automatically assumes that there are those kind of peoples in life and those kind of people are going to do you wrong. You know what I'm talking about? So you're going to face hardships. So let's just put it down. Put Write that down. You're going to face hardship. If you want to, write it down for yourself. I'm going to face hardship. Period. Now, here's what we're called to do. Endure it. Be patient. Be patient. And, and let me just be honest with you. I was talking about with this Lori last night. We were talking about another issue. But I was talking about as we get older. And you notice... When you get older, two things happen. Number one, you don't like change. 
You know what I'm talking about? You don't like things changing when you get older. How I many of you know what I'm talking about? You don't like... Here's the other thing I noticed as I'm getting older, and those of you who are older here, you can meet me up later. We tend to be more impatient. I heard somebody say that's true. That is true, isn't it? As we get older, we don't like change, but we're also more what? Impatient. But here's what Paul's calling us to. You've got to be patient. Because life's hard. And you've got to endure. Now, here's another aspect of patience that he's talking about. Now, this is where I told you it's going to get hairy. We've got to bear with one another. We need to tolerate each other in a spirit of love. And folks, when you deal with the church, with people, that's so important. You've got to put up with other people's junk. There's other, no other way to say it. You've got to put up with other people's junk. If we're going to be a unified body of believers, you've got to learn to let it go. You've got to learn to, at some point, just, you know what? Hey, I love you. <laughs> you need help, but I love you. You know what I'm saying? you just got to let it go. Do you know what I mean? There's no sense getting all worked up about stuff. You've got to let it go. Because think about the stuff we get all worked up about. I can't believe. Did you see them? Yeah, big deal. Big deal. And here's the thing. You've got to tolerate each other in what? The spirit of love. That means you still got to love them. Because here's the thing. Have you ever noticed you've been to family reunions? I mean, we, family reunions are big around here, aren't they, in our area? Okay. And at family reunions, do you see family members you don't like? Do you? Nobody wants to admit it. How many of you see family members? We're not asking you who they are. I'm just asking you, do you see them? Okay? All right. Now, all right. Now, here's the thing I want you to see now. But what do you got to do while you're there? Tolerate them. Why? Because they're family. And have you noticed that one year you may not like him and you've got to tolerate him, but maybe two years later you're going through a hardship and that person that you don't like helps you out and all of a sudden they're the greatest person in the family now. Have you noticed that? Now here's what I want you to understand, though. When you talk about the church, it's God's family. So you've got to learn to tolerate each other. I told you it was Harry, didn't I? Yes. Yeah, it goes both ways. Yeah, Lori just helped you. In your pride, you think nobody, everybody loves you, but let's be humble. Because I told you, humility goes with it. People don't like you either. In fact, look to your neighbor right now and say, I know for sure there's others who don't like you. <laughs> okay. Do you know what I'm saying? No, I mean, you, do, you know what I mean. You've got to tolerate others because, let's be honest, people are tolerating you. You know what I'm saying? So this is, this is the call to unity. We're talking about actions on our part. You know what? If we focus just on these several things, if we focused on humility, gentleness, enduring hardship, being patient with one another, do you think this would be a better place? 
This is what he's calling us to. Now, what's the basis for that? Again, what Jesus has done for us. Now, here's the thing. Here's one other thing he calls us to do. He said we're to make a concerted effort to maintain unity. Unity in a church is wonderful, isn't it? When you have a spirit of unity where everybody's on the same page, everybody's... Every, it's just a great place to be, isn't it, when you have unity in a church. Now, how many of you have ever been in a church where there has not been unity? It's been open warfare. Do you remember what it was like going there? Do I need to go this morning? Oh, I should just stay home. You can't. You're the pastor. You know what I mean? So when you have unity, folks, you got to work hard to maintain it. You can't assume anything. Did you understand what I'm saying? You can't assume anything. You've got to make a concerted effort. And, and it's not just me who's got to make the concerted effort. we all got to make an effort here to maintain the unity that we have. How many times have you hung your head in regret later and said, Boy, I remember when things were so good. Those were good years. Wish they were like that again. I mean, you know what I'm talking about. But the problem was, we just assumed and didn't maintain. Did you understand what I'm saying? And assumptions can be deadly. Assumptions can be deadly. So we need to make a concerted effort to maintain unity. Now, here's what we're unified on. Now, so I'm going to go through the things that, are, that unify us as a church. Paul's going to go through them here in verses 4 through 6. These are the things that unify us. Now, let me go ahead and tell you right now what is not on the list. Politics. What party you belong to or who you vote for. That is not on the list. That is not what unifies us here. So you're not going to hear us talk about anything during election time except you need to go vote. Here's another thing that's not on the list. Labor issues. Whether you're pro-union or pro-management. That's not going to, we're, not going to, we don't, we're not going to talk about that. Here's another thing we're not going to talk about. The football team you root for. Even though the majority of you here are Pittsburgh fans, but there are a minority of folks here. Okay? We're not going to talk about that. Did you understand? We're not going to talk about music. Because I already know, man, there's at least ten different views of music in here. Those are not things that we are going to talk about because can we have unity on those things? No, because even if you're a Steeler fan, you may not be unified. Because maybe you like the team, but you don't like a certain player. And another guy, man, that player is the player. You know what I mean? So here's what we're unified on. Here's the elements of our unity. First thing, there is a universal church made up of all believers. One body. We believe in one universal church. Now, that is not the Catholic church with a big C, although the old creeds say Catholic with a small c. Catholic means universal. 
But what we believe is that there is one universal church, it may be folks from different denominations, Methodist, Baptist, Catholic, or whatever, but they're all believers in who? Jesus Christ. That is one church. We believe in one church. And there's only one head of that church. Who is it? Jesus. Okay? So we believe in one universal church. That's what we're unified on here. We believe that the same Holy Spirit indwells all believers. One Spirit. So the Spirit of God that indwells me indwells you if you are a believer in Jesus Christ. Do you understand? In fact, let's stop for a moment. You know, when we talk about dealing with each other, sometimes you get frustrated with each other. Here's how you pray for somebody. If you know they're a believer in Jesus Christ, Spirit, just as you're working in my heart, work in their heart as well. You know what I mean? Here's the other thing we're unified on. All believers have a common hope regarding the future. We all have the same hope, folks. What's that? Jesus Christ is coming back. We've got one hope that he's coming back. We share that hope. That's what we need to be unified on. And here's the other thing. We have one Lord. Christ is the head of the church. We have one Lord only. Jesus Christ. Here's the other element of faith. One faith. There is one faith that is exercised by all believers. We've talked about that. In fact, that's really what the first three chapters are about. What Jesus Christ has done for you and who you are now in Him. That's our faith. That is one faith that all of us as believers in the universal church believe. And then here's the thing. Every believer shares the outward symbol of baptism. We have one baptism. And then verse 6 tells us we have one other aspect of our unity. And it's from Paul. And one God of all who is above all and through all, and here it is, and in you all. Here it is. One God. Every believer has a relationship with the Almighty God. Those are the things that unify us. So come on, let's stop for a moment. What unifies us? Is it this building? Is it the color of the carpet? Is it whether or not we have padded pews or not? Is it the music? Is it, is it political view? None of those things should be the reason why we're here. If they're the reason why we're here, you've got a problem. Just going to flat out say it right off the top of it. You've got a problem if that's the reason why you're here. Because you're here for the wrong reasons. The basis for our unity is what? Jesus Christ alone. God the Father. The Holy Spirit. The church. Our salvation. Our faith. Do you understand what I'm saying? That's what our unity is in. So next week, we're going to move on, and we're going to look again at the whole issue of unity, and we're going to look at verses 7 through 16 and see what else we need to do as far as preserving unity. Let's close our time in prayer. We'll get ready for the morning worship service.